Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Mia Official, the American playing for Tigres in Mexico. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's games. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with me official in segment two. Let's bring in Witty from sunny South Florida. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. Lots going on in the soccer world. Um, even though it's still strange that the Men's World Cup is not happening, it's, it's, I'm, I'm off. I feel like my body should be experiencing the rhythms <laughs> of the Men's World Cup. But... Um, that's okay because there's a lot still going on. And, and I want to start with the women's national team. Um, U.S. has gotten to the semifinals. They'll be playing Costa Rica tonight um, down in Monterey. And not a great performance, uh, if we're being honest here, against Mexico. Pretty lucky, actually, to get the 1-0 win. Late goal by Christy Mewis. Might have been offside. Um, and... The results may be even less important than the performance part of it because, like, I was in that stadium. Midfield really didn't produce much of anything in this game. And I think this is becoming a pattern under Vladko Andonovsky where not a lot of creativity, um, options of attacking on the ball one-on-one are being given up just to sort of lump crosses into the box, which often go to nobody. And this isn't the U.S. women's national team that most fans know and love. Agreed. And I, I do start to wonder if the the panic alarm should be going off here, just because I, I do think that in some ways, because of the nature of the tournament, it being a closed-door tournament, you forget that the Summer Olympics were a pretty sizable disaster for the United States. And really throughout the tournament, I know they got to the third place game, but throughout the tournament, they were never performing really that well. And so they've probably gone multiple years without impressive performances in competitive games. And that's really concerning in my view. I I know that they've had some good moments in international friendlies and tournaments like the Algarve Cup and She Believes Cup and all that stuff. But the, the U.S. needs to be the best performing women's national team in the world in order to reach their standard. I know it's a very high standard, but I don't think they've really met it that often under Vladko Andonovsky. And I'm not saying he should go, but I do think that next year's World Cup is going to be not quite the guarantee that the U.S. at the World Cup has become. I know they've won the last two, but I do think that these performances would signal that there is something just not right, that the regime change isn't quite working, that they might be trying too many different players to find the solutions. There are a lot of different players that have, that, that have attempted to fix this problem. And from an overall style point, I just don't think it's terribly aesthetically pleasing. And I don't think that this is the U.S. hitting their ceiling. And I think the, the manager has to have a long look at why this isn't happening. And ahead of the World Cup, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that... These performances don't signal a team that are very strong right now. The Olympics is a, is a real strong measure of it. And I thought the U.S. were pretty poor in that tournament. Meg Linehan from The Athletic asked an interesting question of Andonovsky in the press conference after the Mexico game. And his response was sort of looking at the big picture. If the World Cup were today, 
we probably wouldn't be ready, but it's a year from now and absolutely we'll be ready. And when you have a coach say something like that, you know, it, it's, you, it's a little hard to refute that because, okay, the World Cup's not today. That said, if the U.S. doesn't advance against Costa Rica, that's a huge problem. And honestly, if they don't beat Canada, that's a, that's a big problem. And I have a ton of respect for Canada. They're the Olympic gold medalists. But the U.S. obviously went out against Canada last year despite outperforming them. And I, I look at the U.S. performance against Mexico. Rose Lavelle needs to start in the midfield. She's your most creative player. She at least does things that are unexpected in a good way. Um, and the, the central midfield that I saw, uh, Andy Sullivan, Lindsey Horan, Ashley Sanchez, to me just didn't have many ideas. And that doesn't mean you bench all of them. You know, I think Horan actually had a, you know, a good club season with Lyon that won uh, the Champions League. But she's a certain type of player, and she's not somebody that should be like the most creative player in your central midfield. Rose Lavelle should be that person. You should like, and, and Horan has started every game this tournament, even though she's clearly not totally fit. She had a break, unlike the other players at the end of the, the European club season. I don't get why Andonovsky is forcing that her as a starter. If there's one person in the midfield who should be a starter every game, it's Rose Lavelle. Yeah, and there's a variety of options for Vlako Andonovsky to go to. And you're playing games in quick succession. I, I should also uh, kind of give the caveat. You were there. It's incredibly hot in Mexico right oh God. now. Like yes. it's not. These are not exactly ideal conditions to play some beautiful soccer. So I, I, I do want to offer that caveat, but. You're right. I do think that the U.S. will have some pressure on them heading into this Costa Rica game. Um, and I, I just, I'm, I'm left feeling a bit cold by the national team at the moment. And that for me is a concern because I do think you watch the, the women's Euros, the quality is tremendous. The women's game is growing immeasurably in Europe right now. There's going to be five or six teams that go into that World Cup with a legitimate chance to win next year, and the U.S. is going to have to raise their level. We knew this was coming in France 2019 when you start, started to see some of those teams really give the U.S. a challenge that in four years' time, in eight years' time, in 12 years' time, the growth of the club game is eventually going to reach senior women's national team level, and the U.S. has to elevate. And so far, in the three years since they've won the World Cup, you can say they've regressed. And that is a concerning sign. Yeah, because it's coincided with Andonovsky being the coach. Yeah. Uh, and you look at England 8, Norway 0, and that's a Norway team that had Ada Hegerberg, European champion, Ballon d'Or winner, uh, Caroline Graham Hansen, stud with Barcelona, um, Guru Wrighton, terrific club player. Like, that was not a bunch of scrubs that Nora was, was playing. And they lost 8-0. And so it's a variable situation, right? England wasn't great in their first game against Austria, but still, like, these European teams are, are terrific. And, and if there's like five or six European teams right now that if they played against the U.S., I would pick the European team to beat the U.S. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's probably the, the state of play at the moment, but... 
the U.S., as Vlaco has said. I mean, it, the thing you have to give him the room for is he's very clearly embarked on a plan to really scour the entire uh, U.S. player pool and see... Is there something within here that fits our system? What? How do these different combinations of players work? Because every U.S. lineup has different options in it. They've rotated a bunch. They've brought through a bunch of young players. They're kind of sort of keeping one foot in, one foot out of uh, keeping those older players around, the players who've won it all and done everything with the U.S. women's national team. So I, I understand that he is clearly embarking on a longer-term plan here that probably crescendos at the Women's World Cup. I just can understand at the moment why there's probably not a ton of confidence. I will say one thing positive here, though. Naomi Gurma is the real thing. Mm. And I've been very impressed by her performances at center back. Talked to her after the game against Mexico. She actually played two different positions in the last two games for 90 minutes and did it extremely well. She was right center back one game, left center back the other game, and really didn't put a foot wrong. And the one or two times she did, she made up for it very quickly. And the more she plays moving forward, the better, because I think she's going to lock it down for many years at that position. Uh, And it might as well start now. So very impressed with her. Uh, And if that's one big takeaway that's a positive from this tournament, that's a good thing. And we'll see what the U.S. does in the next two games because these are the two games the U.S. is going to be measured by probably in this tournament because there hasn't been that much competition either. And that's another difference between the Euros necessarily. Um, I do want to move on to the big story in MLS this week is Wayne Rooney is back and we'll be managing D.C. United a team that's been in free fall uh, for a while now, lost 7-0 the other night. And we saw this report in the Daily Mail, and you're like, at first, oh, it's a Daily Mail. And then it turns true, and we see pictures of Wayne Rooney boarding a plane on Twitter and, and uh, then arriving. I, I love the fact that both Steve Goff from the Washington Post and Pablo Maurer from The Athletic went to Dulles to stake out Wayne Rooney's arrival. <laughs> and I'm trying to like imagine Pablo and Steve both being aware that they're there staking out Wayne Rooney. The whole thing was just kind of amusing. <laughs> it was very TMZ, wasn't it? Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, not only showing up, but showing up with a mountain of suitcases, very clearly <laughs> here to move for a longer period of time. I, th- I think this is really exciting. I think Wayne Rooney might be one of the managers in the world who has done himself the most good over the last 18 months in terms of bolstering his reputation. Uh, for, for those in the audience that don't know, Darby County was docked, I believe it was 21 points in the end, because they're basically insolvent. And so they had to, over the course of that period that he was managing the team, sell all of their best players. One of them uh, actually plays for Charlotte FC now, Camille Josviak, uh, who they sold for a couple million pounds. Uh, they sold basically anyone who had any value because they're stripping the club for assets because they're that much in debt. And administrators take over and say, well, what can we make money on? Let's sell the players. And on top of taking transfer penalties, or on top of taking points penalties, Wayne Rooney kept getting results with, obviously, the worst team in the championship, probably by a decent amount, and yet they had more than enough points to stay up, if not for the penalties. In the end, the penalties uh, did them in, but he coached an unbelievable season last year, was the galvanizing figure in that community. He was kind of 
the only reason why a bunch of Derby fans kept showing up to the stadium and getting behind the team because they were proud of this team that had completely become a shell of itself. And Wayne Rooney almost feels like the singular reason why that happened. And so I'm really excited to see what he brings to Major League Soccer from a tactical point of view. How does he have this DC team playing? Who is he making phone calls to? Because they have two open DP spots. I imagine he'll want to fill them in this summer so he can try and at least kickstart the end of this season. But this is among the more exciting managerial appointments I've seen in the league for a long time. Not saying it'll work, but I'm really excited to watch DC United now. Well, I'm glad you brought up exactly what happened with him at Derby County because you can tell who out there on Twitter doesn't follow it closely when they said, oh, you know, Rooney got relegated. You know, like, you don't get it. Yeah. You don't get it he at all, He did an unbelievable actually. job. No, he was fantastic. And... Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about having him in the league. And there's this old sort of argument, which isn't exactly wrong, that in a league, is this the only league in the world that has a salary cap and tries to enforce parity in soccer, right? I mean, yeah. that this is actually a better test of your coaching ability, MLS, than any other league in the world. Because you're not given, uh, you're not Manchester City or PSG with hundreds of millions of dollars in euros and pounds being spent more than your opponents, it's all pretty close together in MLS. And so it's a better test of your coaching ability to see what you can do with the roster that you have. And basically what he achieved at Derby County was somewhat similar to that, maybe to an extreme in the sense that he knew he didn't have as much as other teams did. Yeah, I, I do think that MLS is very much a fine margins league. You have to find a player that's making $120,000 and turn them into a valuable contributor. And some of that is not necessarily purely about your coaching ability. It's somewhat about understanding the American system and the American player, how different it is and adapting to the American style of play, uh, adapting to the various conditions you'll encounter in terms of elevation, in terms of travel, in terms of heat and humidity and all of that. So there are so many different factors that you have to consider as a coach. And you're right, it is an enormous test. And a lot of coaches come from abroad, both in terms of South and Central America and Europe, and get it wrong. And so I think Wayne Rooney and Phil Neville talked about this week, kind of, he'll have an advantage by virtue of the fact that he played here and understands some of that. But that doesn't necessarily mean he'll succeed. It's an incredibly difficult challenge, especially when you come into a team uh, in DC that's bottom of the East. It's not been good this season, despite the fact they have one brilliant attacking player. They haven't been able to surround Taxi Funtas with enough. It's also amusing to me that, you know, D.C. and soccer have just had a, a horrible run lately. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a good soccer city. They have some of the best TV ratings for watching soccer games in the country. And yet Washington, D.C. has been kicked in the teeth repeatedly, repeatedly for a few months now not getting World Cup 26 games, um, bad teams, both DC United and the Washington Spirit are terrible right now. And it's interesting, it's not surprising, obviously the coach got fired, Rooney comes in, but suddenly there's all this news leaking out, which is interesting, you know, like the NWSL final is gonna go to DC and the MLS All-Star game is gonna go to DC and, you know, they're gonna, redo the stadium and have new uh, 
like a you know roof parts uh, put up on a stadium that's actually, if we're being honest, been disappointing uh, in everything, despite the except the location maybe. But it's just sort of funny to see. That's what happens in cities around the world when things aren't going well on the field is people in power try to leak out, oh, we got some good things happening here, actually. Don't be so angry. And and really, fans there just want to see wins at this point. And I will be curious to see what DPs come in. You know, Steve Goff had reported uh, Luis Suarez as a possibility, which obviously would be great. But Suarez had a really interesting quote that he gave that came out. It was, I think, to some radio station. I love how like South American radio stations get great interviews all the time. <laughs> um, but he it showed a, re- a remarkably good understanding of why DC United would be a problem for him this year because he was like, look, I've been told that if you don't make the MLS playoffs, you don't play for a month before the World Cup. I need to be playing. And it's spot on. We've seen so many examples over the years when foreign agents and star players don't understand basic stuff about MLS, like you can only have three designated players per team and stuff like that, that it was so great to see an actual sort of very MLS-aware quote from a superstar player target. Yeah, I wonder if uh, Luis Suarez next will be wondering, how much uh, in allocation money does DC United have to go and fill out the rest of their roster? It feels like they're a bit short at the moment. Like, do they have all their super draft picks available? It would, it would, it would be funny if you really got all the way into the weeds. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't really make sense for them either. Like, I don't, I don't think that they're going to be building that way. But to your point, in terms of the overall DC soccer scene, I guess like the hope would be that they wouldn't wait until things got really bad in order to really make those like this level of change, right? I think that. You know, Hernando Sada certainly was a swing, and you hear Jason Levian, the owner of DC United, talk, and he seemed like he really was into that idea, but Losada obviously just ran thin on the players, but you would hope that it wouldn't wait until things got this bad. It's like, oh, we need to, we need to do something big here. And in some ways, yeah, you mentioned, you know, the opening of that stadium. You know, Wayne Rooney was the Hail Mary, in a way, for DC. If you remember the opening part of that year, they were on the road for the entire year, and they, were, they had really poor results. And if not for Wayne Rooney lifting them into this incredible run in the second half of the season, they wouldn't have even made the playoffs in their first year in their new stadium. And so it seems like it's always wait until we absolutely need to to get going. And I think fans in MLS now want to see their clubs be ambitious Every transfer window, like LAFC are. Hell, even like the Columbus crew are. The Columbus crew are not taking being mediocre the last year and a half sitting down. They won MLS Cup two years ago, and they're going again. They bought a DP striker. He's got three goals in two games for $10 million in Cucho Hernandez. So, like, I think fans want to see that level from their club all the time. Double down, double down. Keep going. Keep pushing so that you can have a consistently strong team. A couple other MLS topics. Uh, Let's get into Austin because you've been broadcasting a ton of games, but you had Austin midweek on your Univision broadcast. And this is a team that is no joke at all. They've they've won a lot of games there at the top of the West. Top of the Supporter Shield standings as well. Uh, LAFC obviously played a game fewer, but it's remarkable how Austin were very clearly building towards something. 
And I, I've read that the diehard fans have not always been completely bought into that. It's tough. In your expansion season, you have a brilliant home venue. The crowds are amazing. And they wanted to go out and support a team that would go out and win. A team that spent a decent amount of money. Looked like they were building well. It just didn't come together in year one. And there was some criticism for Josh Wolf, But I think they were very clearly building towards something in year two. And that build towards something is being top of the West. And they have incredibly defined style of play. If you look at the underlying numbers, they wouldn't have you believe that Austin are this good. But if they keep winning games, it almost doesn't matter. If you keep sending those home fans, if you keep sending them home happy, like that, that's great. And the the what, the biggest difference this year, if you look at the actual on-field results, is how good they've been away from home. They've won seven games on the road. They won two all of last season. They're already nine points clear of where they were in 2021. And Austin have the chance to be, you know, if they can sustain this for a period of several years, one of the coolest places to go watch an MLS match. It's definitely one of the cool things to do in that city. I think that city is completely bought in on that club. It's the only top-tier professional uh, sports team that they have. Um, obviously, the University of Texas is massive there. They have a Formula One race. But in terms of a week-in, week-out professional sports team, this is what they have. They're bought in. It's a great style of play. And for me, for the rest of the season, I want to watch Austin FC, particularly at home, because that's a great environment. They play great stuff. They lead the league in goal score. They have a bunch of different options. Sebastian Driussi has been a tremendous DP signing, and it's a brilliant club at the moment. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going. I'm doing a speaking engagement at uh, UT in Austin in September, and we sort of scheduled it so that I could go to a midweek home game for Austin FC as part of my trip. Um <laughs> Looking forward to that, and uh, and who knows if if Austin's still in that position in the standings by then, which they no reason they shouldn't be. Um, that should be just a, a really fun experience. But um, it's interesting you compare a little bit what Austin is doing in year two to what Atlanta United did in year two, and uh, early on in their MLS existence, and. They've fallen off a cliff since yep. then, Atlanta United. And um, recently here, we've had Joseph Martinez being very critical of, it appears to be, Carlos Bocanegra and Darren Eels and the decisions that have been made with rosters and such um, over the last couple of years. What do you think about all this? Well, it is really interesting that I think Joseph Martinez kind of has seen the entire team change around him. It's really only Brad Guzan that's left from those original Atlanta teams in terms of regular contributors. Miles Robinson was drafted into that team, but was uh, slowly integrated into it. And I think he is kind of recognized that the club is unrecognizable from where they were five years ago, when even as an expansion team, I think they're far more thrilling than they are now. And some of that is obviously because Tata Martino was never going to stay there that long. But I think it's also because for whatever reason, Atlanta United saw those first two seasons and were like, we want to completely change this. This isn't working for us for some reason. I don't know what that reason is. I don't know if it's because they kind of recognize that it wasn't sustainable either to play that way or to have a certain kind of player in the dressing room. I don't know what, what, what the issues were, but they immediately pivoted to Frank DeBoer and then they pivoted to Gabriel Heinze. Like they have made decisions at managerial level that have cost them, but also they have not replaced the core of that team that was so strong, Miguel Almiron, obviously the biggest of it, but even players like Tito Villalba and Julian Gressel and all these incredibly strong players. And I think Joseph Martinez has kind of gotten sick of it. And they've tried a bunch of different answers. I think Luis Araujo is a great player. 
He's incredible to watch, but for whatever reason, they haven't been able to put it together. Now, in fairness, they've had an enormously bad run of injuries. Like, they're almost unprecedented. I wonder if fully fit, this Atlanta team would be flying. They probably would be. But there's just this feeling in the club that they haven't really ever recaptured the essence of what won them everything that they won. And in some ways, that essence was able to overcome Frank DeBoer and winning a Campione's Cup and a U.S. Open Cup and all that. He kept winning trophies after he arrived, but the the will that surrounded Joseph has slowly vanished, and he's like, am I really going to be the only one that can carry this forward? And I think he very clearly reached a boiling point, and look, maybe once the players come back to full fitness and everything is fine, but... I, I, do, I am curious for the rest of the season what happens. He actually didn't start in midweek against Real Salt Lake, a game that they did win by two goals to one. But I am fascinated what the answers are at managerial level, at front office level. With him, does he want to be there in the long term? Atlanta are a really interesting club right now. And they've kind of had that, you know, fans show up in a great fan environment. And people love that club in Atlanta. It's remarkable how much they love that club in Atlanta. But they're going through some really tough times. Wanted to wrap up with our... Update on the transfer market. Biggest news since we last recorded, probably Kalidou Koulibaly to Chelsea from Napoli. And here's a guy who, tremendous center back, has been one of the top European club defenders in recent years. We've sort of been waiting for him to move for a while, it seems like, and it's finally happening. And um, that seems like a pretty good move for Chelsea to me, even though he's in his 30s now. Yeah, that, that would be the concern. And I do wonder if maybe there is a market inefficiency in players over 30 because there is, like, there is that feeling that in European football, the second your age starts with the three, you don't have any value anymore. And I do wonder if there is now with the way that athletes treat themselves physically – in terms of eating, in terms of dieting, in terms of, you know, not going drinking every night, in terms, like, if, if players are going to age better, we see it at Chelsea with Thiago Silva. There have been players that were the core of a team that won the Champions League that were in their 30s. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, it's just a concern. Um, because it seemed like Khalidou Koulibaly peaked in value like three years ago, and I wonder if maybe he's fallen off slightly since. I don't know, because I don't watch Napoli week in, week out, but... It is of slight concern to me. I do think he'll be fine. I do think that right now the Chelsea transfer business is being run by Thomas Tuchel, so he very clearly wants the player. And I imagine he'll bring a lot of that experience and maybe the chance for Chelsea to move back to a back four. I honestly think that that's what they're missing to really go and challenge for titles is they need to have another attacker on the field. I don't think Thomas Tuchel ever trusted any of the center backs that they had there to stay in a back four. And so maybe Koulibaly can offer that difference and they can change system, get another attacker on the field so they can score more goals. That's the thing that they've been missing is having the defensive solidity that allows them to attack with four rather than attack with three. I guess it's interesting. He's obviously Koulibaly younger than Thiago Silva was when he came. Silva came on a free transfer. This is a big expenditure uh, to get him. But uh, I love Senegal, by the way. I want to do a story on Senegal ahead of the World Cup because... Just obviously some terrific players from Koulibaly, Edward Mendy, Sadio Mane, and I love their coach, Ali Ucise. Um, I think that team can actually do some damage at the World Cup. Um, and I think this, I still think despite the expenditure, this will be good for Chelsea. Um, I think he'll play well there. 
and and we'll see if there's any more moves coming from Chelsea here. The report today that um, Tuchel has decided not to pursue Cristiano Ronaldo, which kind of makes sense. Uh, I don't think they need him, but uh, also in the transfer market, Rafinha finally going through to Barcelona from Leeds United. This was the club that he always wanted to go to. He did not want to go to Chelsea, which had done a deal, an agreement at least, with uh, with Leeds. And, and Leeds comes away now having done some pretty good business. Yeah, so I, I think the Barcelona side of this is really interesting because they really had to do everything they can to get this player in. So he's going to have to make a big impact. But you're right. So if you look at Leeds, over the course of this transfer window, they have only made two sale or two big money sales in Calvin Phillips and Rafinha, and they've brought in six players, including Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams, but some other players that have Red Bull connections and some other players that are going to help build out the, the depth of that team. And in total, they've made, according to The Guardian, 91 million pounds in purchases and 91 million pounds in sales. They're exactly even on this transfer window. They very, very clearly realized we can't have a team this thin, so we're going to use the sales of Rafinha and Calvin Phillips to fund the rest of our transfer business. Now, you are taking two players that are proven that can anchor your team to stay in the Premier League. If Calvin Phillips was healthy last year, they, they might have been fine. Marcelo Bielsa might still be the manager if Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford were healthy for most of last season. But now you're completely turning this team over to Jesse Marsh and his style of play. And if it doesn't work, there is a mild concern that now leads are bent to this identity and a new manager might want to come in and change it and may, might that manager have wanted Rafinha and Calvin Phillips so that for me would be the concern if you're Leeds but this is fully Jesse Marsh's team now I imagine he has a lot of players that fit his system and it'll look more like what he wants with a full preseason and players that fit it so it's really all on him now to to turn this into results and have this team be you know comfortably mid table, um, get, which is where they were before uh, all the injuries and all the issues with Marcelo Bielsa in his first year in the Premier League. Yeah, I liked what Jesse Marsh said in his media conference after all this, and really put things in perspective. And I thought the right context, which is, look, you know, Rafinha, this was his dream to go to Barcelona. Calvin Phillips, somewhat similar situation to sell to Man City. And we really appreciated the way Rafinha was committed until the end of last season to keeping Leeds United up, knowing that if they had been relegated, the fee to Barcelona would have been much, much lower. And so uh, the feeling from Marsh of like, look, we feel like we owe him a little bit for that. We can get a lot out of this. And hopefully over time here, we can create something at Leeds United that's really special so that players in the future like this won't want to leave and feel like they can have European football at Leeds United and win trophies with Leeds United. And I think that's the right approach if you're Jesse Marsh. And I think from what I could gather online, at least, that Leeds United fans appreciated that. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very clear explanation. I do think that a lot of English fans don't seem to see the forest for the trees on that one. Like whenever I hear, you know, a, a lot of breakdowns of the offseason, it's, well, Crystal Palace have to keep Wilfred Zaha. Well, Aston Villa have to keep Jack Grealish. And I don't think there is that forest for the trees views of, okay, well, yes, obviously they're incredibly important, but I, I like Crystal Palace were eventually able to build without selling Wilfred Zaha, but it took them a while 
and they, there needs to be an expenditure to bring through the next group of players. And I do think that Aston Villa, you know, it's going to take them a minute, but I think that in the long run, signing three players for what you paid for Jack Grealish, 100 million, or what you got for Jack Grealish and 100 million pounds will eventually lead to longer term growth. Hopefully those players get better and you sell them for more. And that's how you build sustainable business models. That's really the model for, you know, higher level Bundesliga teams. They bring through great young players, they sell them for a lot of money and then they replenish. And so I do think that, yes, these are, these have been the stars for Leeds. But now it's time for them to find new ones. And hopefully, for their sake, they have. You know what's my favorite is, and I, this is a media perspective, I guess, but how the Premier League has become the most international soccer league in the world. And yet you still have people in the media over there. Most of them seem to work for TalkSport, <laughs> who constantly will say things like, they brought in a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> It's the most international league in the world. Do you think that any team in the Premier League would spend 91 million euro, pounds, euros, whatever, <laughs> and just, oh yeah, we're bringing in nobodies. We haven't put any work into this. And like, it's, it's just and so some of the And the thing is that some of these players, like, even if you're like, they have two players coming in from, from RB Salzburg, they, they play Champions League football. Like, they play in the Champions League. That's a bigger competition than the Premier League. I know that the Premier League is everything to these people, but if you play in the Champions League, you've played in the biggest club competition in the world. Here, here's where they've signed players from. Feyenoord, two players from Albi Salzburg, one from Leipzig, uh, Leipzig, one from Bayern Munich, and the other from Manchester City. I know that maybe those guys haven't played full minutes with their senior teams, but obviously those clubs know what they're doing. So yeah, I I, I I never understood the not not Premier League. What so you'd rather sign you know Mark Noble? I know that's not a bad he's a bad example. He's retired now, but just like just a guy <laughs> who's bit like you'd rather have James MacArthur because he played for Crystal Palace. Like what are we doing here? It's really funny. And one thing that it took me a long time to learn this is that the four biggest countries in European soccer uh, at the club level the media there pay very little attention to what's going on in the other three big countries. Or in, in, in don't pay attention at all to anything outside of that in Europe or in the US or South America. It's just something you have to sort of realize over time that just because these are great football cultures, actually here in the US, because it's a much more divided loyalty fan base in terms of what people here watch, we have a lot better understanding, I think, of like what's actually happening in different countries. In the in England, they're not watching the Bundesliga. But I also imagine in in Germany, fans of the Bundesliga, they'll probably watch the Premier League, but they're really into the Bundesliga. It would be like if there is a rival American football league in Germany, and a bunch of NFL fans like just didn't know what was happening. They brought in a player from that German NFL league, and be like, "What's going on over there?" Like. You know, like I, I, I do think that there is a myopia because, yeah, it's what you experience every day. You go to the games there and like when you've watched three games in a day and then watch match of the day at night, you're not then going, what's going on in Syria? Like, <laughs> I, I, I do think that that myopia exists and it's because it's, it's your national sport. It's the biggest thing that's going on from a sporting perspective in your country. And I understand why. All right. I'm not going to take my Sunday afternoon to watch Stuttgart. I, I get it. <laughs> Fair enough, my friend. It is always good to talk to you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Mia Fischel. 
Our interview guest today here in Monterrey, Mexico, is Mi Official, the forward for Tigres, who played in college at UCLA. Mia, it's great to have you with me. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about here. We're actually in Monterey for uh, the CONCACAF tournament. This is, as I'm told, the women's soccer capital of Mexico. So much success over the years with Tigres, with Monterey. Um, how would you describe what the support of women's soccer is like here in this city? What makes it special? I mean, it's huge. The fan base is, I guess, the first thing that kind of hit me strong. I mean, if you have a strong fan base, that is equivalent to how much support there is in women's soccer. Um, I get stopped in restaurants, in uh, in the mall, everywhere, just asking for autographs, asking for pictures, videos, I mean, you name it. Like, everywhere I go, I have to be on my toes because someone's most likely going to run into me and ask for something, um, as well as from the club. Um, just the equality in the men's and the women's just using the same facilities um, the staff is on it uh, and that's just like a true test to how they see women's soccer and where we're going and what have you learned about your club Tigres in your time with the team so far yeah um, just professionalism I mean that's all I can really say about that the uh, attention to detail from our staff making sure I got here um, safely got here um, feeling welcomed and that's um, how I felt coming here and I think it's just I don't know uh, that's just how the staff is so it's cool I guess one thing I'd be curious to know is how did you learn that Tigres was interested in you yeah so I mean I talked to my agent with my other options um, and there's multiple offers from Europe from um, what's it called from Mexico and Tigres came with the strongest offer the strongest interest with like a 30-minute presentation on um, how they see me fit into the team, um, how what I can bring, what they like about me, and that's like the main reason why I came to Tigres is because I felt my worth and what I deserved um, with how I play as a person. And so um, Tigres came out really strong, and that's kind of why I landed here. Recently here, Carmelina Moscato was named the new coach of Tigres. Um, She's Canadian, you're American. Is this a club that is wanting to get more of an international flavor beyond a Mexican flavor? Yes, I I think so. And I think like any league benefits from multiple perspectives of the game, um, their background. I mean, I love it so much because there's, you know, every country has a different perspective and a different um, idea of what the game is. And so, you know, hearing that Carmelina was going to come from Canada and I have teammates who come from Canada and just talked so much, so highly of Carmelina. I was super excited to start to get to work with her. You're just getting going with the season. So, like, what have you learned about her as a coach and what she wants from y'all? Yeah, she's she's amazing. Um, she cares about each player as their own individual. Um, she she brought structure. She brought um, a motivation that we didn't have in the past. And I think that um, her she's I can tell that she's very intelligent in the game as a player, um, as a coach, as an analysis for the FIFA World Cup. I mean, she comes with a lot of weight. And I think the team is very appreciative and, and super happy to get to work with her. And I know that the rules in the league are currently two non-Mexican players per team. Recently, it was pretty noticeable. Jenny Hermoso from Barcelona signed with Pachuca. Mm -hmm. 
Do you see more of those types of signings in this league as a whole? And do you think there's a chance they may change the rules to allow for more than two internationals per team? Yeah, Jenny Hermosa coming to this league is huge. I mean, it's huge for um, this league because of the player that she is coming from Barcelona, top goal scorer. I mean, who doesn't want a type of player like her in their league? Um, and I think um, players like her and me are starting to realize um, how quickly this league is growing. And I think it's coming from their passion. Um, Mexico is, I would say, probably the most um, emotional, the most uh, supportive country on soccer and female soccer in general and that's just um, you can see the numbers how many viewerships are watching the game um, how it's being broadcasted um, that like I said the interactions with their, their players um, it's huge and I think that it will lead to the league expanding their numbers of non-Mexican uh, non-Mexican players soccer players coming to the league because it it makes the league grow I think and I believe and a couple other questions here um how would you just say you've been here for a little over a year? How have things gone for you personally so far? Uh, personally, it's been going really good. I think it's um, a big kudos to my teammates. Um, as soon as I got here, they made me feel like family. They still do. Um, every single one of them are great, great people. Um, they love soccer as much as I do. So I really can't complain on um, living here as well. The food here is amazing. I love Mexican food. I'm from San Diego. So I'm used to the food here. Um, and I like the switch up. I'm from the beach and being around mountains is different, but um, I'm starting to enjoy it and starting to enjoy uh, my teammates taking me places around here in Monterey. Um, how's your Spanish? It's it's getting there. It's getting, <laughs> it's getting better. Um, I actually had my first Spanish class with um, Carmelina and Owen, who's um, our trainer on Tuesday. So I'm excited to like formally know Spanish. <laughs> I've definitely learned words from my teammates <laughs> and uh, sentences. So it'll be cool to actually, you know, learn from a teacher. Do you feel like... You know, we can see your games in the United States. Um, the level of the league is growing and growing. Do you feel like you can still be in the U.S. national team picture by playing here? Yeah, I 100% I agree because me and my agent have talked to national team coaches. That was our main issue coming to Mexico was uh, we don't know if, how they're going to feel about that. So we made sure that me coming to Mexico, me playing in um, this league would affect me playing with the U.S. Women's National Team. So I got the go ahead. So that's why I'm here as well. And I did notice, I mean, here... Uh, in journalist land, you know, we'll ask coaches and stuff. And, and we asked Blacko, like, are you considering bringing me official for this camp? And he said you were injured and then you've been playing uh, for your club. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, it is accurate. I had to turn down the U23 um, national team camp because I had a grade three 17 centimeters um, tear in my hamstring. Oh, God. So... I was able to heal quickly. I don't know, we, we had an MRI, I think two and a half weeks, three weeks later, and it went down to two centimeters. So they're like, I don't know why your body's like supernatural or what, but um, you know, it got better every single day and we took it slowly and I did my rehab, I did my therapy and I was able to play. Uh, as you guys saw in the last game. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this on Sunday. I think we're coming out on Thursday, so there mm -hmm. be a couple days gap. Is it in any way weird that the U.S. team is here right now? Super weird. <laughs> <laughs> I just got here, and now the U.S. Women's National Team here, and, you know, all the 
Canada, Mexico. I mean, everyone's here. So it's it's weird seeing my UCLA teammates here and just, you know, they get to experience where I, where I am, which is a really cool, cool thing. Did any of them ask for tips on Monterey before they came down here? Not yet. It makes sense because, you know, um, being with their national team is like very strict. So I, I get that um, they're in their own bubble and, you know, it's a tournament. So I know they got to stay ready. And... What are sort of, I know you've probably got big goals in your career, uh, club, national team. What do you want to achieve in your career? I mean, I've said this like a bunch of times, but I want to be the best soccer player in the world. I want to be considered that um, by the time me and soccer are no longer together. Um, my dream, obviously, is to be with the U.S. Women's National Team. That's always been a dream. They're the best in the world. Um, and I know one day I'll get there. Uh, I do also want to play in Europe because, you know, uh, I love their soccer. I love how they play. And that'll be a dream as well, playing over there. Mia Fischel is a forward for Tigres here in Monterrey, Mexico. Congratulations on what you're doing. Good luck. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Mia Fischel as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.